Welcome to Food for Thought. I'm your host, Evan Makovsky, along with Bob Fesco. In this episode, we're examining mental health and sports, which is at the forefront right now in the sports world. And we will have former Major League Baseball player Jim Eisenreich, who had Tourette's syndrome and still has it, but played his Major League Baseball career through it. And we will have mental health coach Mike Wellington, who has bipolar disorder, on as guests. But Bob, let's first start with the first issue that really brought this to the forefront, and that was Naomi Osaka pulling out of the French Open, the number two player in the world. That really put this in the spotlight as she cited mental health issues and exited the tournament. You know, it's a really big moment for something like that. I mean, I think everybody uh, knows somebody that's dealing with a mental health issue, whether it's an athlete, whether it's a teacher, whether it's somebody in your own home, there's always somebody that you know, or you may not know that are, that are dealing with some of these mental health issues. And I think by having a prominent athlete kind of come out and talk about this and show everybody that it's okay to admit that something's not right and admit that something's not wrong, I think you bring awareness to that. And, and maybe she helps herself throughout all of this, obviously, by, you know, pulling out of the French Open. But I I think also what you're trying to do is kind of raise awareness about this. And I think in, in, in the world in which we live now, Evan, so many people are afraid to do things or afraid to admit the things, but when they see somebody famous, somebody like an athlete who you think is like, you know, infallible, like they, there's no way there's anything that can bring them down. And then you see something like this that brings them down. It makes them more human and gives you the opportunity to kind of say, Hey, maybe I've got something wrong that I need to get off my chest as well. So I, I think it's great for Naomi Osaka, but also, for the other people in the world who may be suffering from something very similar to her. You know, athletes, they are on the public stage, whether they are missing a free throw, getting booed, maybe missing a golf putt. And we will discuss that with Mike Wellington coming up. But a lot of, you know, we think that they're tough and they're impervious. And I'm not saying that this is the cause of mental health issues, but missing a key game winning field goal, whatever the situation is, they actually, we may think that they're tough and that, you know, they can handle this. And yes, it's part of the job, especially if you're a pro athlete, but they're human beings too. Well, and, and that's the thing. You said they're human beings too. And I think, you know, when, when you and I were together in St. Louis, Albert Pujols was known as the machine. Like you didn't look at Albert Pujols as a guy who was a human being. You looked at him as just an athlete that went out there and dominated. And I think we put athletes in, in, in a category at times, Evan, where we don't look at them as human beings. We look at them as machines or as people who can do anything because they've got these superhuman abilities. We have to start understanding and realizing that these athletes are human just like the rest of us. And just because they can go out there and dominate in baseball or tennis or golf or whatever that may be, it doesn't mean they're any different from us when they go back home at night and they close the door and they're dealing with some of these mental health issues. And I can imagine the pressure that's on some of these world-class athletes every single day to not only be as good as yesterday, but be better than yesterday and be better than the competition, which is just as good as you. And so I think at times, we, we look at professional athletes and we kind of take them for granted and think, oh, you just go out there and play your sport. And you're going to be OK. But what they're dealing with behind the scenes is probably a lot more difficult to, to understand than we can even imagine because they're being challenged at every aspect of every moment of every day that they're alive. 
CTE has gotten a lot of press in the last decade or so um, with uh, mental health, especially after NFL players retire, boxers, whatnot. But they did find CTE even in the current NFL player. And I'm not trying to deep dive his situation, but Aaron Hernandez's autopsy after he uh, commits suicide in jail. But it's not just about CTE. We need to look at athletes who currently play and the stresses they undergo and not just psych brain damage that actually mental health issues is normal. Well, it, it is. And, and, and that goes again to the whole thing about not treating athletes like human beings. We don't identify with athletes because they do things we'll never be able to do and they make more money than we'll ever be able to see. And we think by having those two things, that makes everything great in life. And quite honestly, at the end of the day, it doesn't. It probably really makes you kind of lonely at the end of the day because who are you going to talk to about hitting a baseball? You know, there's not many people you can go to to talk to about that or what life is like on the road or being away from your family and all of that kind of stuff. We think because you're a great athlete and have a ton of money, you're just happy-go-lucky and everything's great in this world. And that's just not necessarily the case, you know, nine times out of 10. U.S. leagues have become more hands-on about mental health in recent years. A couple examples. In May of 2019, the NFL and the NFLPA Players Association issued an addendum to the collective bargaining agreement that requires each team to hire a clinician focused on supporting players' mental health and well-being available on site for at least eight hours a week. Teams were also required to create a mental health emergency action plan. NBA and WNBA teams also require or are required to have a plan for mental health emergencies and to make mental health professionals available to players. In MLB, they have a mental skills coach to help players with mental aspects of the game and an employee assistance professional uh, on staff, a licensed clinician who helps players with on or off field issues when necessary. Um, Again, though, these players going to almost almost like, uh, you know, I, I, it's not a one to one analogy with steroids in the 80s and doctors, you know, saying, go play, go play. But maybe athletes don't want to go to these people on staff because they feel like it will jeopardize their job or that they are going to be viewed as weak in some way. And they're not utilizing these on staff um, clinicians, so to speak. Well, I would think that would be the case back in the 80s and, and even into the 90s, you know, when, when we were growing up. I mean, that it was a macho man world in professional sports, and you didn't admit to anything. You didn't admit to an injury. You didn't admit that something was wrong with you because people behind your back would probably make fun of you back then because we didn't know. But as society has advanced and we've all grown in this society and learned more about everything and stuff becomes, you know, kind of you know common knowledge, it's in the public forefront, I think it's okay to admit to some stuff like this and I think obviously you look at these sports leagues the three that you just mentioned with football baseball and, and the NBA and WNBA for that matter you're looking at leagues that, that have embraced this and basically given their players the ability to say 
everything uh, is not right. There is something wrong. And it gives the players, I think, the ability to talk to somebody about it. Because I think when you're dealing with, with mental issues, especially as a, as a professional athlete, you know, you've never really been in a situation where you're not able to just go out there and dominate. So you don't know what it is. And to have somebody on staff that can help you through all that and explain to you and try to help you through all that, to let you know what you're going through, I think it is necessary. And, and, and I would hope, you know, guys would take advantage of it, even if they don't think they have, you know, the mental issues, just talking to somebody about what they're going through on a daily basis can be good. Bob, one positive development with Osaka pulling out of the French open is I saw Steph Curry. I saw a myriad of prominent athletes come out, whether it was on social media or, you know, giving an interview to the press, supporting Naomi Osaka, which leads me to believe that a lot more athletes, excuse the term, are in the closet about mental health. We've seen Serena Williams come out and talk about it. We've seen Michael Phelps, who even endorses mental health type products. And the other thing that was very encouraging around the Osaka story is that every one of her sponsors, and again, maybe there's one that did not support her, but everyone came out and backed Naomi Osaka. And that to me, between the professional athletic community and the business sponsors, that is a huge step. Well, it's big. Absolutely. Because just, just go back, you know, a, a decade ago, I don't know if that would be the case. And the example that I can use to show how far we've come is what we saw this week. And, and, and we're taping this episode at the end of June with Carl Massive of the Oakland Raiders. He now has the number one selling Jersey in the national football league coming out and admitting that and, and letting folks know that, that he's gay. And seven years ago, when Michael Sam did that, there was a lot of negativity towards Michael Sam this year in 2021, when we see Carl Nassim, you know, come out and say that he is a gay man, you see a lot of support, a ton of support, so much support for him. And so I think that kind of ties into the mental health side of things where people are now more educated, more accepting and more understanding of what each individual person is going through on a daily basis. And we're more open to, to learn about what people are going through also on a daily basis. I think we've kind of gotten out of our silos and we're more willing to talk to other people to find out what's going on. We're more apt to say, how are you doing and really care how somebody's doing than maybe we did seven to 10 years ago. So I think the world is changing for the better. And I just don't think at this point in time, if you want to come out and say, hey, I've got a mental health issue, I don't think there's going to be anybody out there. I shouldn't say anybody. There's always somebody, but many people out there that are going to look down upon you. They are going to support you. And that's exactly what everybody needs at this point in time. I don't think mental health gets the respect that physical health does because physical health is visible. If you have a limp, you're not going to tell somebody to walk faster, but many mental health issues, you can't see them. Now we'll talk to Jim Eisenreich who has Tourette and that can manifest itself or it does manifest itself in public expressions for most, but mental health doesn't get that respect. And even somebody, and I don't know what's going on with Kyrie Irving, if he, you know, has mental health issues or not, but 
if a player, I still think, you know, misses a game six of a playoff series because, and that's not why Kyrie Irving did as the Nets lost to the Bucks. He was having an ankle injury, but he, you know, he said some weird things. We don't know if he's, you know, being crazy on purpose, or maybe he has some issues going on mentally. But if a player were to miss a game six of a playoff series, whether it's in baseball, hockey, or the NBA, and it wasn't because of a physical injury, I'm not sure. And they cited a mental health injury or not injury, maybe not the right word, issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that the public would be so accepting. Well, that, that's an unbelievable point to make. And it, it, it will be interesting to see when it does happen for the first time, how people do respond to that. But uh, you know, I, I think you have to be as respectful towards a mental health injury as you do to somebody's ankle, because your mental health dictates your well-being of everything else. I actually saw a mother you know, today when I was picking up my daughter at soccer camp and, and her shirt says, you can't be healthy unless you're mentally healthy. And you know, that's really where it all starts. If your mind isn't right, your body can't be right. And if you are someone that is battling a mental illness right now and it's preventing you from doing your job, whatever that job may be, then you need to take time off. But I, I do, I think it's a really interesting, interesting angle to bring up to see how the fan will respond if their favorite player misses a game and it's a game seven or a playoff game in the NFL or something like that because of mental health. I hope they would react the exact same way as if somebody missed a game because they blew out their knee because an injury is an injury. All right, Bob, when we come back, we will have Jim Eisenreich on. He played his major league career with Tourette syndrome. He even had to stop playing for a couple years. He had it since he was a child. uh, We will hear from Jim and uh, he had extreme success too in baseball and really persevered despite having Tourette syndrome. That's next on Food for Thought. I'm Evan Makovsky along with Bob Fesco. We'd like to welcome to Food for Thought, where we're discussing mental health, former Major League Baseball player Jim Eisenreich, who suffers from Tourette's syndrome. Jim, after developing tics at age six, how was a baseball career pursued at even the Little League level without interference? You know, I didn't even know I had Tourette. All I had was these tics, and um, I actually wasn't diagnosed until I was 23. So I was still a kid, you know, and I'm just playing ball. Um, Grew up in Minnesota, so you play ball in the summer, you play hockey in the winter, and whatever else is in between, you know, and so that's what I did. And Um, so, go ahead, Jim, no, continue on, I'm sorry. I'm just gonna gonna say it's, uh, it's one of those things, we didn't know a lot about what it was or what it is, and, I was just trying to be a normal kid. And so that's how I did kind of the outlet or the relief for me was playing, playing ball or, or whatever sport was in season. So what was it like growing up as a kid? Didn't know what that was like. Obviously you had a, a little bit different thing going on than some of the other kids. How, how difficult was it for you as a child? You know, some things were difficult. Um, but like when I, when I do speak to groups about this, um, I grew up in what I call a normal family. My mom and dad, it was me and three brothers and a sister. We did normal things, you know, went to church on Sunday. We went, did picnics. I mowed the yard. We did the garden. Um, 
played little league ball, uh, just hung out with my neighborhood kids. You know, that was kind of it. And so that's what it was like. But school was a little different. Um, went to a Catholic grade school and, you know, I couldn't sit still worth a darn. You know, I, I never, I tried not to be the bad child um, and I wasn't, but it appeared that I was, you know, not being a good kid, you know, and, and the thing with Tourette and just a general behavior problem is there's such a fine line and it's harder now. In those days, we didn't know what Tourette was. So the first thing they look at is, well, what's, what's Jim trying to get attention about, you know? So it, there were some moments in school in the grade school level that were difficult for me. I couldn't sit in class. I'm going to ask you this on the air, and this wasn't even my initial question. Lots of places it's listed as Tourette syndrome with an S. You refer to it as Tourette. I see it uh, both ways. Which is it? It's supposed to be the singular uh, definition. The S, and actually my foundation has the S on the end because that's what was available. The national organization gets the real one. But yeah, it's um, the guy that invented or its name was Gilizala Tourette. That was his name. So when we say Tourette's, it's supposed to be his, not <laughs> All right, well, you brought up a good point here. You said you weren't diagnosed until you were 23 and I'm gonna go with Tourette. Um, but other kids in school, you said you couldn't sit still and you didn't have an understanding of what was going on with this involuntary disorder. Did it cause trouble with you with other kids? Uh, sometimes it did. Yeah. I um, unfortunately had to sit in the front of the class because of Eisenreich being the top of the alphabet. Um, and I got laughed at. I got teased. Uh, you know, mimicked a lot of the things that I did, all the noises, the, the movements. Um, now we call it bullying, <laughs> you know, in my, in my day, it was just kids tease me. Um, but when I was on the playground with my friends or schoolmates or whatever, I was a pretty good player. And so I was wanted on those teams. Um, so it kept me out of a little bit of trouble. But, you know, by the time I got to be 12, 13, um, you know, a young, early teenager, then kids really start having different attitudes and things are flying inside our bodies and and I really got I had some hard times you know and I, I try to avoid them but I, it was hard sometimes you know Jim I, I think what's interesting about your whole situation is you you are I, I guess kind of a living proof of why sports matters you hear so many times from people like you know why does sports matter why do kids play sports why does it matter here you are a kid suffering or something that nobody knew anything about your entire childhood but you could ball, you could go out there and, and you were the best athlete out there on the field. Did that make it a little bit easier for you to deal with what you were dealing with as a child at the time? Cause everybody knew you were the best athlete in school. You know, not really, because we didn't think of the sports as being good or bad, you know, even though I was okay. Um, we didn't have the intention or the, the goal or the dream that we're ever going to play, you know, in Minneapolis with the twins. You know, that was the only team we watched or a Vikings football player. We didn't know that. And so it was hard um, from, from that standpoint. But at the same time, it, it did ease it for me because I was welcomed on teams. Um, and so that was a little bit easier. Uh, I guess the funny thing or not really funny in, in, for me, but when um, we'd leave the ball field or the hockey rink after games, those same kids were the ones who were giving me a hard time off the field or off the rink, you know? So that, that was difficult. Um, 
but I was the only one. And that's how I felt. Can you take us inside athletics and Tourette syndrome? So what would happen if you're playing the outfield and a ball's hit to you and somehow a, a tick occurs simultaneously? How does that work? Well, first of all, I don't know how, it, it never was simultaneous. Okay. I don't know why. There's some ability within us to hold our ticks for a minute, 10 seconds even. So I get that question asked a lot. You know, if I'm in the batter's box, and a pitcher is throwing the ball, what happens if I have a tick right in the middle of a swing? Well, I never did. And if you think about going into the batter's box, um, the pitcher takes how long to throw the ball? He gets on the rubber, he gets a sign, maybe 10 seconds? Well, I could get in the batter's box and be ready. And then as the pitch is thrown, either I take it, I swing or whatever, then it's done, we start again. I back out of the batter's box, I can take care of my issues in a couple seconds go back in, and then I can do it again. Now, the, the hard part for me was not so much the ticks, but it was my thinking about them. So I go to the outfield, and it can be pretty boring in the outfield sometimes, you know, in a baseball game. You may not get a ball the whole game. And so between pitches, um, I'm starting to think, when, when I'm having trouble with my ticks, I'm thinking, okay, are they watching me do my ticks, or are they watching me at all? I was always self-conscious of people watching me, whether it was in a classroom or wherever, or on the ball field. And so I got into trouble when I started thinking about all those ticks and trying to stop them. That was the, the key for me. The more I tried to stop them, the worse they got. Now, when, a, when the pitch was thrown, just like that, I could get back in and the ball hit to me and go get it. I never missed the ball because I wasn't paying attention or because I had a tick. What about on the hockey? What about on the hockey rink, though? I mean, playing ice hockey as a kid growing up, too. I mean, I, I'd kind of like to hear that kind of story because that's just constant go, go, go for two minutes that a line changes and you're constantly involved in the game. What was it like playing hockey? Well, you think about that, though. You are kind of going. So, you know, your line, if you skate a minute, that's a long time for, for one line shift. Mm -hmm. um, and you're always moving. Plus, you're wearing a helmet. So I could do everything I wanted to. <laughs> and everybody, they, they wouldn't know it because you're moving all the time. That was always the thing I explained too, is that the more I could move around, the easier it was for me to kind of hide them or mask them, even though I still did them. You talked earlier about how you can hold your ticks for 10 seconds or whatever it is, but um, they uh, did become so bad that you had to come off the field at one point when you were in the majors in the middle of an inning. Can you take us inside that situation? Yeah, and, and that was, um, the, the big story was when we went to a series in Boston, in Fenway Park. Um, now, before that, this was my rookie year too. So I'm a I'm rookie with the Twins, I made the team, I'm, I went north and we're, we're started off, you know, uh, I'm one of 10 or 15 rookies on that team. And, but my ticks and things were, were there in spring training. They were, they were not fun then. So what happened in, in Boston was, I was telling you about thinking about between pitches and stopping them. And I got so involved in trying to stop them. I, I, I almost freaked out because I was, in fact, I probably did, whatever that means. Um, I was scared to death. I thought I can't stop these. I'm gonna pass out here on the, on the, in the center field and I'm done, you know? And I don't know why that, kind of suddenly got to me, but um, 
after that, well, I came out of the inning, you know, came off the field, uh, middle of the inning, and that was the sixth inning. The next day I did the same thing, but came off in the third inning. Next day I did, I, I think it was the second day, it was quick. And so I think mentally there, I was done. I was like, okay, I, I don't like this feeling. I could care less about baseball. So my, my thought there, to hopefully I'm answering your question, but I could not stop what I was doing. I was so focused on the ticks and all the movements and everything. I couldn't stop them. It got to the point where, you know, there was things said about me hyperventilating and I probably was, I don't even know what I was doing. Um, when I got to the clubhouse after the game, they talked about the media people thought that it was the fans in Boston being unruly, which we know they always are in Boston, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, I told them, I said, I never really heard a thing they're saying. They could have said anything. It was a packed house, but I couldn't, I could not get out of my own self thinking of what, you know, what's going on here. And I was just flying all over um, physically and inside of me, I was a mess. So I was done playing. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So, so what, what happened here? You're done playing. You take three years off from 1984 to 19. 87 how did you deal with the disorder during that hiatus so to speak and and an involuntary hiatus I gather and then how did you make it back to the majors I mean it's it's an incredible story well the the first thing when I when I we left Boston go, we're going back to I'm um, actually going back to Minneapolis through Milwaukee we had to play the Brewers in a series too and when we got back to Minneapolis um the Twins president, Howard Fox, brought me right to the hospital in Minneapolis, real close to the Metrodome, and put me in, you know, I checked into the hospital for basically a week and had every physical mental test ran. Um, and they but couldn't at that really point in time, Jim, you hadn't been diagnosed yet. You weren't, you weren't no. 23 yet, so you had not been diagnosed yet. That, that's correct. I had oh. not been diagnosed. Um, but you know what? There was something deep inside of me that thought, you know, I might be going to be getting help for the first time in my life. And that's kind of what I always wanted. I had no idea what that meant. Um, but I spent, I spent more than a week there that time. Um, came back out and, you know, tried to do some things with getting back on the field, but I wasn't ready. Later, that's, this is 1982. Later, the summer went back into the hospital. And I'm on the sixth floor, which is the mental health ward. You know, and I could never explain what it was. Well, make the long story short, somewhere in there, I talked to a specialist uh, doctor. Now, the, the funny thing is he was, uh, had a Middle Eastern uh, descent. So he spoke very um, broken English. And so he told me, he said, I think you have Tourette syndrome. He said, I wrote a book about this. And I didn't hear real clearly so I make it made a joke about it afterward that he said tourist syndrome and now I travel you know and anyway it took me a little bit to understand what he said and so I'm, I'm researching and that's where the diagnosis came um, so that was that was the first part um, internally I kind of didn't care about baseball anymore I didn't care what kind of money I was going to make it didn't didn't matter I was playing for fun anyway um, but now I was finally getting the help that I really desperately wanted since I was a kid. Um, and you know what? I'm, I'm with a major league ball club. I probably have access to the best medical help anywhere, maybe in the world. I didn't know. And so 
that we did that, and I tried to come back in 1983, played two games. So I'm, I'm not ready. Did the same thing in 84, played a little bit, and I just went home and, and voluntarily retired for the second time. Um, and so at this point, I don't really care about playing ball. I would really, I wanted my health first, went back to, to school and worked on my degree, um, took odd jobs, you know, and did that. And, and I, start, I kept playing uh, what we called amateur baseball in Minnesota, played softball leagues, and, you know, I still skated in the winter. And so I kind of kind of kept playing the things. And I was kind of going back to my, probably my college goals when I, when I went to school. I was going to be a, a wildlife manager, which meant I'd be in the north woods of Minnesota you know, going into bears dens in the winter and checking them out, you know, I don't know, but that's what I did. And I did that for a couple of years. And, um, in the summer of 1986, uh, my, my former college teammate, roommate, Bob Hagman, uh, had, was not with the Royals anymore. He retired sort of, he was with the front office. Now he calls me to check in. And for whatever reason, he said, what do you, what do you want to do? What are you going to do? I said, oh, I don't know. I'd, I guess I'd like to have another chance to play, you know, and, and he probably was calling for that reason. I didn't really know that. Um, but as I found out later that he had talked to our college coach and blah, 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 you know, so he made it happen. I was able to get released from the twins and then went to the Royal spring training in 1987. Well, I, how, sorry, continue. No, could you go ahead? I was going to say um, once, once that happened, um, I probably could have said no to doing it, but then there was that internal me that wanted to know, okay, if I say no, I'll never know if I can play again. If I, if I say yes, and I go play, I get invited to spring training and for whatever reason, I don't make it. I'm okay with that. So when, when you did go back and join the Royals in, in 1987, are you fully diagnosed? Are you on the mend? Are you working on things still? Like, where are you health-wise at that point in time? Uh, I was in a good spot. I was, I was pretty confident with a lot of things I was doing, um, both physically. Physically was easier. Mentally was the harder part. You know, and even though Tourette is a physical thing, I think it affects us more mentally than anything. So I was, I was okay. And you know what, the thing that always happened, I went into, I walked into the clubhouse in spring training in Fort Myers in 1987. And the first guy that comes to me is Frank White. Didn't really know Frank other than him being a, a ball player. He says, hi, Jim, welcome to the Royals. And that, that was like one of those didn't have to happen things. And he's been a good friend since. And, and to reconcile your life here, as you said, you weren't diagnosed until 23. You're in the majors, which is a dream. I don't know if it was a dream for you, but somehow dealing with this disorder since age six, you managed to make it to the major leagues, which is incredible. And then less than two years in, you're out of the majors for three years. I mean, how, just it's just almost too much like you're in a good head space it sounds like coming back to major league baseball like how did you yeah reconcile all of this well um i agree that it's not normal <laughs> you know, I, 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 I do agree and i know that guys have done this um not very often um but i, I go back to when i was a kid and this is what i've always told groups that i just wanted to be normal Normal to me was like my dad. My dad was married to my mom. 
We did normal things. That was what was normal. So when when I when I got back to the Royals um, and and doing all you know where I got to go, um, like I said I I didn't know if I'd make it, and if I didn't make it, at least I tried. I'm okay with that. Uh, and I, the joke is I didn't bargain for another 12 years, <laughs> but you know in two World Series. And so um, I, I always feel that I wasn't made to be a ball player. I was I was here probably for this Tourette thing. You know, and started my foundation, and and everywhere I went with the Royals, you know, they brought the local Kansas City chapter of Tret into the stadium Sundays. Then it turned into a couple more days in the off season. We did this, went to Philly, and they did the same thing. And the Marlins did this, and holy cow, you know, I I saw kids and their families have the same questions and and doubts or goals maybe that I had and my maybe my parents had growing up, and so. You know, I, I felt almost obligated to continue talking to them. And so, you know, if I can do this thing, you guys can too. This is, you know, it's, it's, it's not very fun to go through it, but, you know, there is light at the end of that tunnel and it can be, you know, World Series light. That's kind of crazy. Well, yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's not just you played baseball, which is a big accomplishment in and of itself. You ended up playing for two teams in the World Series, and you hit home runs in both of those World Series. When when you're rounding the bases in the World Series and you hear the crowd, are you thinking about the struggles that you had to go through to get to that moment in time? You know what? I didn't hit many home runs. You know, you can look. I hit 52 in in regular season play, and I got two bonus in the World Series. So I was running, you know, I never had a bat flip. <laughs> I hit the ball and I'm running like a dog and I'm going, but all I could think was in my head was, oh, thank you, Lord. Why did that happen? You know, I hit a, a bleeping home run in the World Series. That's all I could think of. It's like, holy cow, it's not real. I didn't know. <laughs> what, what about teammates? Once you got back into the major leagues, were they sympathetic that you had Tourette where I would assume everybody reacted differently, but, uh, you know, I would gather that once they, I, I mean, it's something to admire that you're overcoming this extra hurdle and boy, is it an extra hurdle. What was the feedback from your teammates? You know, that's a, that's a great question because that was a big part of it. And like I said, Frank welcomed me right into the Royals clubhouse and most of the guys were very empathetic you know, and they were, they were well-wishing, you know, just very nice, but that only goes for so long. Once you get onto the playing field against the other team, then all that's kind of done. Now you, you know, yeah, that's fine, but you, now you got to play, help us win a game. And that's how it was. And it was that way with the Royals. Um, and so after they got to know me, it was, you know, I, I, still, I still live here, you know, and they're all my friends. We see each other a lot. Um, and so that, that turned over tremendous. When I went to Philly, it was the same way. It was kind of a spring training thing and you got to get to know the guys and, and they're probably a little bit cautious because they know my deal. Um, and as it turned out, it turned out to be better than I could have ever expected. And those guys were John Cruck and Darren Dalton and Lenny Dykstra and Mitch Williams and Kurt Schilling and all these wacko guys. 
I became the most normal guy on that team. I, I'm looking at the box score of that World Series game in 1993 and those Philly teammates, and I'm going down the list, and you're right, man. You had everybody and their brother on that team that was like, I don't want to say like a problem child, but definitely a personality back in that day. What was what was it like being part of that Phillies team? You, you know what? Um, not knowing in spring training what was going to happen because they were a last-place team in 92. And when we started the season, I'd never had better teammates. These guys off the field, I didn't, you know, I was not hanging with them off the field. That wasn't my deal. But when they were on the field, they were, they were more of a team than I could have ever imagined. Um, you know, as goofy as Lenny Dykstra has been, he was like the best leadoff hitter, smart baseball guy that I've ever seen. Um, and then and all the other guys were the same way. And our only goal was to do whatever we could to beat the other team. And for the most part, we did, you know, we got to game six and we probably should have won that, but, you know, we didn't. <laughs> so it yeah. was fun though. What was it like being on the field when Joe Carter hit that home run? Can't be uh, good. Can't be good. Tourette or no Tourette. <laughs> yeah. Kind like, of not, not fun, you know, and yeah. you know, Joe lives in the area. Yeah. Here. Right. So like, do you, you guys see each other ever? I mean, cause all the time. Yeah. And the bad thing, Joe's a really good guy. So I can't even pick right. on him. But, you know, people, everybody knows his home run. So, Joe, can you sign my ball? You know, walk off World Series home run, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'll just sit there. Joe, are you paying these guys to say that? Because none of them know that I was the right fielder for the Phillies. Right. Well, you got a championship in 97 with the Marlins against the Indians. Take us inside that World Series. That was unbelievable. You know, it's, um, I was the DH in Cleveland. You know, and um, for games three, four, and five, well, games three and four is when I was a DH. Um, 32 degrees at game time. We had snow flurries in <laughs> batting practice. And I, I, I hit a home run in, in that in game three. Um, unbelievable. You know, it's one of those where you know you hit it, you don't even feel it. It's like, anyway, and we came back. That was the game we won uh, 14 to 11. We scored seven runs in the ninth inning. They came back and scored uh, four, three or four, in the, whatever it was, in the bottom of the ninth. Long game. Anyway, um, then we, you know, we ended up winning in game seven. And uh, still, one of the things I, I'll never forget, I'll go pull it up on, a, on my videos real quick, and I'll, I'll watch the home runs, but then I'll watch the last play when I was on second base. Craig Council was on third, and Edgar Renteria gets a base hit and all I had to do is go touch third and console scores the winning run. And we just won the world series and I get chills even saying it again. It was so cool. For people um, who don't have Tourette, don't know that much about Tourette. They may know it's just ticks. What kind of on your day-to-day life limitations? Is there certain medication? Can, are you prohibited from, any foods, alcohol? What, what about uh, life with Tourette? You know, there, there are no limitations um, in general. Each person is so different. I think that's why it's probably really hard to get the proper diagnosis and treatment for those of us that have Tourette. Um, just because there's about 10% of Tourette people that have it really bad. I mean, they're Almost 24-7, you can't, they can't stop moving. You know, the, the, it's called corporalalia. They curse out loud or, you know, just 
blurting out words inappropriately. And then there's the other end that have a 10% of people that maybe have it that don't have a problem with anything. They, they, it's never bothered them. Maybe not even been diagnosed. The rest of us are in the middle and probably needed some sort of help, whether it's medication, uh, nutrition, um, just you know, physical exercise. There's so many things. And so there's not any one that works for all of us. I needed medicine at first. I needed to somehow calm down. Um, unfortunately, some of the medicine is to get you to calm down way down. Well, that doesn't work for playing ball. And so you, you have to do a little bit of trial and error. And that's what I did. And, and hopefully that the kids and parents or families now don't have to go through all those steps to make it. They can just recognize right away um, from a medical standpoint, what it is. It almost becomes harder though, trying to deal with schools, um, teachers uh, that may not understand. Some are great and some are not. It's kind of like anything. Um, and, and sometimes kids, you know, we talked about suppressing a tick for a while. A lot of kids will suppress them at school, come home and blow up on their parents and parents don't know why, you know? And so there's just a lot going on there. Um, I don't even know if I answered your question. It's just, it's constant. No. There's no limitations as far as diet. Um, I, I, however, learned a lot of things that potentially made me have more ticks than others. Uh, I, I would say though, if you talk about the 10% with the severe Tourette. I would assume that, and I could be wrong, that like somebody who's severely autistic, somebody who's got severe Tourette maybe is unable to marry, maybe unable to engage in life activities that somebody without a disability or disorder can engage in. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Yes. Yeah, that is very accurate. Um, and not everybody, but, you know, that is definitely one of the issues. And the associated disorders, you know, a lot of kids have ADD or ADHD and, you know, you hear, hear OCD and all these definitions of everything, you know, and whenever you have something added to something that's already a problem, mm -hmm. it becomes a little extra. So you know? what, what's your advice when you talk to kids and parents who, who have this, that are growing up with this disease and, you know, they're embarrassed or they're upset? Like, what do you, what do you tell these kids and parents? Well, the first thing now is I say that, you know, there's hope. You just research everything you can, um, try to figure out what, when the kid or who's ever has Tourette, what's the good part of the day that he has? What's the bad part of the day? I look at diet. I, I believe in diet, you know, um, just a lot of different things. Do as much research as you can. Uh, try to get to the right doctor, you know, um, take their advice or at least listen to their advice and see what happens. Cause you, everybody is so different. Um, we don't all react to things exactly how we think we should um, both physically and mentally. And so you just have to do what you can to, to try to figure out what's going to be the best for that. You obviously are a role model, Jim, uh, just, I mean, playing in the majors, like you said, your story is anything but normal or common, but when you connect with these kids, who, I don't know, maybe they feel broken. Maybe they feel like, um, you know, they didn't get dealt a fair hand in life. How do you um, help them? You know, all I do is tell them my story. And you know, what's really neat is 
when I'm with a group of kids with Tourette, they'll, they'll open up and they'll tell me, say, I have this tick and I don't know what I was doing. I don't know how to stop it, you know? And then I'll say, you know what I had? And I'll tell them mine. And I can openly freely tell them what I have. Um, but what I found is in the last maybe 15 years that the kids aren't really worried about their ticks. Parents are worried about the kids' ticks. The parents are the ones who, um, they feel like some of them blame themselves for their kid being so-called not healthy, whatever that means, you know? And so they don't know what to do. So when, for me, it's really gratifying talking to the kids. And when I do that, I can almost see the parents in the back. They'll start, look at a tear in their eye. They've never seen their kid look like, be able to open up and look sort of happy. And that's, so that's all I do. Um, just try to be, make them aware of what it is. And that, you know what, I was a ball player. I became a ball player. There's a lot of things you guys can do that are much better than me being a ball player. And they, you know, they can. I mean, it's just, it just takes a little belief, you know, a little uh, positive attitude and, um, uh, you know, adults that will, will support that. What are your ticks, by the way? We haven't even discussed yeah. you during, during this interview. I, I wouldn't know that you had Tourette. What, what are your ticks? You know, um, I don't have a whole lot now, but if I do, I will blink my eyes and, you know, squinch my face or whatever. Um, I don't have a whole lot. Uh, and that, that's the other thing when you're, when you're younger, they typically, what they, we call wax and wane. So, my, my eye blinking was always the first one I did when I was a kid, um, fast as could be, you know, and then, then it would subside and then I would almost go to the next one, which was like moving my shoulder. One of mine was sniffling, uh, kind of like I'm clearing my throat, grunting or whatever. Um, but that's the thing. There's no, I don't really have any now. They, I do some facial things, but, um, I'm, I've been pretty good, you know, Tell I Tell everyone about your foundation. You know, the, the foundation was started in 1996 um, with the sole intention just to make families uh, and people dealing with Tourette aware and, and hopefully be a resource to where they could get some answers to the questions that, you know, that, that my parents might have had or I had. And so that's all we did. You know, we, we, I talk to them um, when I can. Used to, I used to, before the COVID thing last year, um, would, would host groups at stadiums where I'd go to a city and, and they'd I'd meet at the school. You know, I'd do a, um, a classroom visit, you know, or an assembly at a, at a middle school. Um, and so that's what we do. We, uh, we talk to them um, just to make them aware of what it is. You know, and sometimes it's now it's better to talk to the friends of these kids because they're the ones who really don't get it. Yeah. You know, when a, when a Tourette kid has a friend that does get it, he's a friend for life. And, and he does more for the kid than the kid will do for himself, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Jim, we so. appreciate the time. Thank you so much. This was unbelievable to listen to and to, to hear about how you you know, accomplished not only being a major leaguer once, but twice in the big leagues and then hitting two big home runs in the World Series. So we appreciate the time today. It's amazing. My, my pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate thank, it. Thank you. Well, Bob, Jim Eisenreich is certainly a lead point, a role model. After hearing that, 
I admire him. It's just so amazing to me that he had Tourette basically since he was a small child and didn't even know it. And then somehow he plays and uh, makes it to Major League Baseball. And then it really rears his head. He has to get out of the game for a couple of years. And then he comes back. I mean, it's just a surreal story to me, hitting World Series home runs, playing in the World Series with the Phillies, winning with the Marlins. It's just uh, inspiring. Well, it really is. I mean, it's, it's amazing what you can do when you truly identify an issue that you're having, fix that issue and really work to fix that issue and how you move forward with that. And I think Jim Eisenreich is an unbelievable example of somebody who found something that wasn't right, fixed that issue, and then went on and had a great career. I mean, the man played in two World Series, hit a big World Series home run, won a world championship with the Florida Marlins, made a great uh, career out of playing Major League Baseball. And, and I think he really is an inspiration. I mean, there, there are kids out there every day, not necessarily with Tourette, but have something that maybe is holding them back from being like the other kids. Jim Eisenreich realized that and was fortunate enough to be a Major League Baseball player where he could get that help. But then to go back at it to Evan and really try to establish himself again as a Major League Baseball player after he had to walk away from the game, it takes a lot of courage to do that. And, and Jim had an amazing career after finally realizing what was wrong. And I know he's now in his uh, 60s, but to me, it's amazing how positive his attitude is. He doesn't have any resent towards his past. He doesn't, you know, lament the time that he missed. I mean, I it just, it was just it completely uplifting to speak to this person. I know there are people have much more, which he touches on severe Tourette, the 10% that he was talking about. And maybe that's a different story there because that really impedes your life. But the fact, you know, from interviewing him, we would never know he has Tourette, but he has it and he just has stayed positive. And there's, there was no why me in his mm -hmm. voice during that interview. No, there was no why me. And what was interesting is that he kind of figured he was done with baseball and he was kind of content just to, to move on and just by happen chance was able to get another opportunity because somebody took an interest and cared about him and followed up with him and stayed in touch with him and made sure that everything was okay and kind of knew in the back of their mind, Jim probably does still want to, you know, go out there and play baseball and still wants to be a part of something, uh, you know, at the big league level. It still has the ability and talent to do that. And, you know, it's, it's important in life to surround yourself with good people who believe in you and Jim Eisenreich was fortunate enough to have that and got that other opportunity and he took you know took huge advantage of it well it was a complete pleasure to interview Jim and to have him on food for thought where we're focusing on mental health when we come back we're going to have Mike Wellington he is a coach he assists pro athletes collegiate athletes with mental health and sports. He was diagnosed at age 23 with bipolar disorder and he made a run at being a pro golfer. And we will hear from Mike about how bipolar affected him in his life. And he certainly had uh, a roller coaster ride to get to where he is now, but he is also a lead point. That's next on Food for Thought.
We'd like to welcome Mike Wellington to Food for Thought. He's an author, speaker, and mentality consultant who works with pro and college athletes. He doesn't just work in the athletic arena. He helps people across the board with mental illness, in particular bipolar disorder, which he was diagnosed with at age 23. He is now chairman of the board for Birdies for Bipolar, the intention of Birdies for Bipolar is to instill hope and perseverance when fighting mental illness. Birdies for Bipolar works to impact lives, empower youth, improve quality of life, and educate people of all ages. Mike, mental illness has been on the forefront these days when Naomi Osaka pulled out of the French Open due to mental health issues. What was your reaction? I thought it was an incredible act of awareness on her part to be able at a major championship like that to tap the brakes and say, Hey, you know what? I'm not right. I don't feel right. I've got to do some things differently to get right, to work on myself. Because I think the natural reaction in that situation for any athlete, if they're in a major championship in like tennis or golf, or if they, are playing in the World Series or they're playing the Super Bowl, the natural reaction is to go ahead and play. And I think her awareness to kind of take a look around and tell everybody, hey, my health is more important than this tennis event, no matter if it's a big one or a small one. And, and frankly, that is really the message that people need to understand. If you don't have your health, you really don't have anything. And certainly someone of her stature she realized that she wasn't going to perform at her at her highest level without her mental health being in check. So, you know, uh, you know, thumbs up to her, kudos to her, uh, impressive for her to do that, especially she's pretty young, right? I don't even know how old she is, but she's pretty young, I think. Yes, Michael, she is. Uh, how widespread do you think, though, mental health issues are in professional and collegiate sports? It seems more and more now people are obviously, you know, comfortable talking about it. But how widespread do you think this is right now? Well, I mean, 20... 24% of the regular population has been diagnosed with some form of mental illness. So that's only the people that are willing to actually go get diagnosed. And that's the general population. So that's 24%. Let's say, just for fun, let's say the real number is probably 40 or 45%. And I think that number would correlate to professional sports. I think that because, you know, all professional athletes are despite you know, what they're able to do uh, on the athletic field, they're human beings. So I think you're looking at 50% or just under 50%. That's just my guess, my opinion maybe, but uh, I think those are the kind of numbers that are, you know, that we're looking at straight in the face, Bob. Do you think it's also a situation with um, athletes that it's hard for them to come out with because of dealing with the public? Or do you think we're getting to a point now where it's more and more acceptable, easier for athletes to come out and admit they have something wrong with their mental health? I think it is definitely easier today. I, I got a phone call on Saturday morning uh, from a friend of mine who's on my charity board for Birdies for Bipolar. And he said, did you see the story that came out this morning about Matthew Wolf? Matthew Wolf is a PGA Tour player who was in the, near the lead or in the lead at the U.S. Open over the weekend at Torrey Pines. And my buddy called me and said, did you see that story? And I said, yeah, I saw that story. I think it's awesome. Uh, and my buddy who actually helped me form Birdies for Bipolar nine years ago, he said, you know, it's funny because when we started this almost a decade ago, 
no one was talking about it or it seemed like compared to the numbers today of all the people that are talking about it, the percentages are, are hugely different of people who are willing to not only in the professional sporting circles, but just in everyday life who are because of Instagram, because of Twitter, because of Facebook, now people are, are able to kind of get it out there. And I think that's the best way to help anybody uh, with any sort of mental illness uh, to, to be a little bit more specific and say, you know, what we're working on, are we working on anxiety? Are we, are we working on depression? Are we working on bipolar? Whatever it might be. Um, so I, I think right now it is, it's a strong and as big of a time for the light to be shined on mental illness as there's ever been. For, for those who don't know, real quick, tell everyone the Matthew Wolf story. So Matthew Wolf, uh, last year in 2020, he was, you know, arguably playing the best golf of anybody. And uh, all of a sudden, at the beginning of the year, he kind of, he fell off a little bit. He kind of disappeared. He disappeared from the tour. Uh, and he showed back up after a long hiatus at the U.S. Open. And he was obviously playing very well. And uh, you know, people asked him in the interview rooms after his rounds at Torrey Pines this past weekend, Hey, where have you been? How have you been doing? And he, he wasn't very specific about what he was battling, but he did say, which I think was good for anybody that was listening, especially younger people. He did say that I just, I took some time to work on my mental health and I needed to get that in order. And, and he decided to, uh, come back at the U S open because he, he spent a good, I want to say six weeks of away from the PGA tour, just kind of working on himself. And, you know, uh, tip of the cap to him for doing that. I think that uh, guys like him, uh, Bubba Watson uh, has come out in the last, uh, you know, six months or so and talked about his struggles with anxiety. Certainly, I being around golf, I follow those guys a little bit more closely. But uh, I think, you know, you're going to see more and more athletes come forward as we move uh, along here. What are you doing now with mental health with pro and collegiate athletes? Well, I'm, I work mostly with professional golfers. Uh, I work with some amateur golfers and I work with, uh, Tony Vitello, who is the head baseball coach at the university of Tennessee. He just won the, uh, Rawlings and uh, national baseball writers, uh, coach of the year award. And, and we just, I work one-on-one -on -one with him on mentality stuff. You know, what kind of energy is he going to bring to the park? uh, to help his ball club every day. What kind of enthusiasm is he going to bring? You know, sometimes he might have situations with his players, uh, mental health questions, uh, about, uh, stuff that I can help him with that maybe he couldn't help or he couldn't find help with, uh, somewhere else. So we've, we've been working, uh, for about four years now. Um, obviously very proud of his success. He's a very talented guy and, and really is a special, has a special mentality, so that's kind of my uh, one uh, link into baseball. But the most of the stuff I've been doing is golf. Um, you know, I've, I've caddied quite a bit the last three or four years when I haven't played as much, working with a couple of different professionals. And it's all just, you know, how are we going to stay in the present moment? You know, because whether you have a mental illness or you don't, staying in the present moment is a magical way to go through life. I mean, if you can stay in the present and not get sucked into thinking about negative things in the past or not get sucked into thinking about um, crazy things that could potentially happen in the future or, or negative things that could potentially happen in the future, you know, that's kind of the secret area that I think both athletes and regular people are looking for. They're trying to, if they, they may not even realize it, but if you can be in the present moment, you're going to, you're going to have a better time with your own mental health, 
Uh, and certainly when you're trying to perform at a high level, like some of these athletes I've just mentioned, um, you know, it's funny, golfers and pitchers in baseball are very similar. You know, one pitch at a time is the, the phrase in baseball. One shot at a time is the phrase in golf. So, you know, I, I love working with these guys because especially the golfers, because that's kind of my forte, uh, because the, the more I can help them be mentally sharp and improve their awareness, you know, the better they're going to do in tournaments, which, which is going to make them more money. It's going to help their families more. And uh, I just, I like the challenge of, of taking on um, negativity, really. That's what we're really taking on in both regular life and in the sporting world is you're just trying to battle against negativity. Well, there, there are two things that I want to follow up with. One, how you stay in the present moment. And two, how do you battle that negativity? I was talking to somebody about an experience I had just actually today where I went, there was a lot of negative energy, man. I got to get, get out of that negative energy. How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like you need to pretend it's a boxing match or, or a fight. And any, you know, you, you have to be become, and I've been better about this the last 10 years because I've gotten a little bit older and God forbid, a little bit more mature, but keeping negativity away is really your choice. You can, you can choose to allow these bad things to happen. Like any of the golfers that I work with, you know, they can choose to stand behind a golf shot and say, you know what, I, I might hit this in the water, but that's a bad choice. The, the choice is I'm going to hit this at the flag or I'm going to hit this in the fairway. When it comes to baseball, you know, I think guys, uh, they get ahead of themselves and, and they don't stay in the present moment and they may, you know, they may make an error defensively, uh, you know, from a, from a pitching standpoint, you, you certainly want to be locked in on what you're trying to do at that specific moment, whether it's throw a curveball or a slider or, or a fastball. And, and I think those things by staying in the present, that also helps you keep that negativity away. But really, Bob, the, the quickest and one word answer to your question there about negativity is choice. It's a choice to decide and say, you know what, I'm going to double knot my laces. I'm going to hitch up my trousers and I'm going to get after it. And I'm going I'm to make sure that I remain positive and, and, and I'm going to think of positive things and think of positive outcomes instead of going down that rabbit hole of, oh my God, what if we don't win? Or what if, what if this happens and things don't work out? I mean, that is absolute poisonous thinking. And, and this is, you know, like I said, the, the older I get and, and a little bit more maturity, I think, and that's for anybody out there, whether you're an athlete or not, uh, I, I think a little bit of maturity goes a long way in, in staying in the present and remaining positive, you know, just choosing to be, I heard a, uh, you know, one time years ago, I was listening to a, uh, an old Fleetwood Mac, like, like, uh, like on a cassette tape mm -hmm. and Lindsay, I'll never forget this. Lindsay Buckingham came on and it was before he was about to start his set. And he said, I just want to say to everybody out there that I try to make the positive choice every day. And I hope you make the positive choice. And that really stuck with me for a long time, making the positive choice, whether it's with business, your relationship, your athletic endeavors, making the positive choice to me is, is that's where it all starts. So you, um, work with golfers you mentioned baseball so a, a good baseball hitter is a 300 hitter yeah that means seven out of ten times they're going up and failing and they have to go up to the plate the next time planning to get a hit 
you know, you, there's other sports that maybe you're not involved with, but a kicker who misses a field goal, a basketball player who misses a key free throw. It, it goes, it goes on and on and on. So what kind of, besides telling them to stay in the present moment, what kind of specific work are you doing with them? Cause it, it is kind of, you know, dealing with the mind is complicated. Yeah. I think the biggest tool, Evan, that I've come across, especially the last, like, five or six years is visualization, you know, visualizing those free throws going in, you know, for a golfer, visualizing that putt going in the hole for a pitcher, visualizing that slider that, you know, just kind of touches the uh, outside corner, uh, you know, visual, you know, visualizing again, what you want to have happen instead of picturing what you don't want to have happen. I think, um, visualization is such a, a huge key and with sports and with uh high level athletes and uh you know i mean we've all seen uh you know the the videos of the jordan documentary and and just kind of how his mind worked and he the thing that i gathered from him mostly and certainly i followed him very closely from the early 90s on was the guy just always thought that he was going to get the job done no matter what now i don't know if he was visualizing those jump shots, you know, going in the, the basket or, or those free throws going in. I'm not sure if he was. I think he probably was. But I think he was. I, I think so. But for, I think visualization is such a, an awesome tool. And it's kind of like, a, you know, I know when I started using it when I was playing golf in the, kind of the middle of my um, playing career, uh, it really made a huge difference to see a shot before you hit it, to stand behind a shot on a tee box and and just kind of literally make up the shot and create the shot in your mind before you would have your, uh, your body step in and pull the trigger on the shot. And it's weird because, um, you know, I'll teach some golf lessons here and there. And I tell people who've never had, ever used visualization, you know, stand behind the ball and try this, see, you know, visualize the ball going lower than normal or visualize the ball going higher than normal. And it's weird when you do that with your visualization and then you apply it with your actual physical movements, it's wild how much it helps when you do it as opposed to when you don't visualize. And so it's just an amazing thing visualization is. Mike, you were diagnosed uh, with bipolar disorder at age 23 for somebody who doesn't even know anything about bipolar disorder. Tell, tell us what bipolar disorder is. So bipolar disorder technically is a, a mood disorder. And Obviously, anybody that has bipolar, and I can speak from experience with 20 years under my belt with it, uh, you want to keep your mood in that kind of middle area. And what I mean by middle area is there's two areas in the bipolar brain and bipolar mind that you want to stay away from. Number one is the mania, the, the manic mind. Uh, some people may be familiar with, with mania, but just to give you a little idea of how I look at it is mania it intrudes into your mind and causes you to move way too fast. It causes you uh, to not sleep enough or sleep properly. It causes you to have slurred speech. It causes you to have accelerated speech. It causes you to go on wild and crazy spending sprees, buying things that you simply don't need. Um, you know, behavior like, you know, staying out all night, um, not really needing sleep, feeling like you're inv invincible. You don't need to rest. You can just kind of tackle anything that comes along. And then eventually after, you know, a week or two weeks of that kind of manic behavior, you know, your body will crash. So that's, that's the high side of bipolar disorder that 
someone that has bipolar wants to stay away from. Then you have the low side, which as you would all probably imagine, or your listeners would imagine is uh, the depressive side, the battle with depression. And, and the, uh, the, the bipolar depression can be absolutely body numbing. It can be debilitating from a physical standpoint. Like it can keep you from getting out of bed. It can uh, rob you of all your energy. Uh, certainly, you know, there's, uh, there's lots of issues and lots of stories about people that have bipolar taking their own lives, uh, suicide, is certainly a, uh, a product of uh, bipolar depression. So you have the depressive side at the bottom, you have the manic side at the top, and certainly we wanna try and stay in that middle ground in between those two, because that's where you can be healthy, that's where you can make that choice to be positive, that's where uh, you can live a productive life. I'm never gonna say you're gonna live a normal life, because I don't believe there is such thing as, as normal. But if you can stay out of mania and stay out of depression, you can find that middle ground where you can be productive and contribute to society, you know, whether it's getting out in your community or with a job or in your relationships. Um, that's the area that we want to that we want to stay in when you have bipolar. Michael, Evan mentioned you were 23 when you were diagnosed with bipolar and, and you were a pretty good golfer growing up. Do you think bipolar disorder prevented you from being a professional golfer? Uh, no, no. I mean, I think, um, I was, my talent level wasn't the, after, after, uh, after playing for 13 years and then going to caddy a little bit and, and seeing these guys even closer, I think my talent level, uh, I didn't have quite all the tools to get to the PGA tour. I had some tools. Um, now the bipolar, I, I don't, I wouldn't uh, completely pin it on bipolar. I mean, certainly there was, there was times over the course of those 13 years when I had to go into hospitals, when I had to spend time away from golf because I had to get my life in order. Um, but, you know, I, I think if I, if I had the, the kind of gifts and all the tools that you need to play the PGA Tour, I think I, I could have done it. But I think there were some things that were missing in my game uh, now, there were some things that I could do very, very well uh, at a high level, um, but as I moved further along in the game as a caddy a little bit and working with some of these guys from the mental standpoint, there were things that I needed to learn about golf that I wasn't able to learn when I played because my priorities at the time when I played were out of whack. My priorities were golf first, pretty much everything second. And I had to learn the lesson of your health needs to come first and then everything else can come after that. So, I mean, there were times when I was uh, probably needing to play more events and I couldn't do that. And I needed to get more experience and kind of really dig into the craft of playing the game and playing the game at the highest level and competing more often. But, you know, I, the facts are, I did have these hospital stays that would impede my progress and what I mean by that is sometimes I might have to go into the hospital. There was a hospital stay in 2006 uh, that was 33 days in the middle of the summer. So that was kind of middle of the season, if you will, for a guy at, at that time at my age to go and play tournaments and, and stay sharp. And so now I was able to you know, come out of it uh, in 2006 and go play the next you know, year and a half. And actually, that was probably the best golf I ever played was in 07 and 08. But um, I think I don't think uh, bipolar helped me. Let's put it that way. However, I will say that I believe that as a golfer, you really you don't see it. You can't really tell with these guys on TV. But 
um, as a golfer, you really need to have an incredible amount of energy because, you know, the, the misnomer about professional golf is that it's this country club, white collar deal. And the truth is, is that golf is as blue collar as you could ever imagine, because you're going city to city. Sometimes, you know, you're going to have rain delays in these events and you might have to play, you know, 40 holes in one day. Uh, you, the weather is sometimes, it's not always great. I mean, I know we see on the PGA Tour on television, the weather looks always great, but that's not always the case. Um, it, it really is, it's a huge grind. So I think when I was younger, the bipolar energy probably helped me get further than I would have if I didn't have that energy, because that energy enabled me to practice, you know, maybe more often than somebody that didn't have that, the bipolar energy in their life. Um, but certainly, yeah, I mean, it, uh, would have been easier to me to get, make it to the PGA tour without bipolar. I wish I could tell you the answer. I'm what about, sure. what about Mike? Um, you obviously already discussed mania, manic depression and the depressive side. So you can wake up and you have to go play a tournament and you're in a manic state. That's yeah. possible. You, there you wake up, you're in a depressed state. You don't even want to get out of bed, but how did it manifest itself on the green? Uh, yeah. I and mean, that's a good question. So, when I was, whenever I was manic, I wasn't even fit to be in public, right? So I never even played. I don't even think I played, but maybe one single tournament when I was considered manic, right? But the biggest challenge with golf was the depressive side because golf just beats your head in. I mean, you know, you can go from one week having everything working to the first day of the next tournament, nothing's working and you shoot a bad score and then you miss a cut and then you're in some you know, small town uh, in the middle of nowhere by yourself and you got to, you know, stay in some flea bag motel. And, and that's when it became more challenging because, I mean, I love the game. Like even when I was depressed, I would still go to the golf course, right? Because that was just kind of where I lived. But in retrospect, you know, there was a lot of tournaments that I played um, in, in the grips of depression. Now, and now I quit drinking in 2011 and if I, if I could go back and do anything differently, I would, I'd take the bipolar. I could handle the bipolar, but I grew up in St. Louis where unfortunately drinking is very celebrated. And I got fooled when I was 14, 15, 16 years old into drinking and the drinking was cool and drinking exacerbated the depression of my bipolar disorder because alcohol, as many people know, is a natural depressant. And if you have bipolar disorder like me and you drink, you know, that 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 depression is going to linger even longer. And I think in retrospect, that's one of the things that happened to me is that uh, there was a lot of drinking, like not like I wasn't like an all day long guy. I wasn't an everyday guy drinker. But, you know, on the weekends I would go out and then that would affect me. But I was young and stupid and I didn't realize that it was really affecting me. But when I got when I stopped drinking and really got healthy and looked back at my time playing. Um, it was clear that if I had to do things differently, the booze, if I could take the booze out of the uh, equation, I really would have had a much better opportunity to succeed. All right. So you mentioned eight bipolar hospitalizations. You mentioned one for 33 days. Do you want to share maybe an anecdote or two that landed you in the hospital? Sure. Uh, I mean, all of them for the most part were because I was not taking my medication. And if you're a person that lives with bipolar disorder, 
you must take medication to battle it. Because the, and the reason I can say that to everybody out there that's going to hear this is that I live this. And every time I would either skip my medication or I was drinking and the drinking negated the effects of the medication, I wound up in a hospital. So I like the question, Evan, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you two separate stories with one of them was when I wasn't playing golf. And one of them was when I was competing. So the first one was in 2006. It was that, it was that uh, 33 day stay. I mentioned I wasn't playing golf at that time. I mean, I was, but I had another job. My other job was I called baseball games at the university of Missouri. I did, uh, I did color commentating. That's actually where I met Vitello or not where I met Vitello, but Vitello got me that job and he was working at Mizzou at that time. So I did the color commentating for uh, the Missouri baseball team. And it, we had a really good team. They went to uh, super regionals. They had Max Scherzer on the team. Well, when I was working for them, my life got really fast in the sense that I was living in St. Louis, but I was doing the broadcasting job in Columbia, Missouri, which is about an hour and a half drive from St. Louis. <laughs> so I would have to drive back and forth a lot. And uh, it was a really fun time because the team was doing really well. They would let me even take my golf clubs with me on the road so I could practice when we were in different cities in the Big 12. This is back when they were in the Big 12. And one thing led to another. My life got going so fast that I actually went for a, it was the second to last weekend of the season. We were playing Texas in Columbia and I had missed my medication for like two or three days. I went out uh, in Columbia with some friends um, and I was overserved. I got drunk and I had a manic episode in Columbia and somehow after that series was over, I was even able to go on the air. Um, I'm sure if you heard the broadcast, it would be very odd. But uh, I remember leaving immediately after the Texas game, the, the final Texas game was over that series. I drove back to St. Louis and it had become uh, clear from my from my friends and family that I was I was manic and I wasn't right. And um, one of my friends actually tackled me uh in a parking lot so he could get me into his car and then get me to barnes hospital which is the big hospital in st louis and i ended up staying there for 33 days it was really bad and and the reason i was able to get better and this was a really big turning point in my life as far as handling the bipolar this is why i wanted to emphasize the importance of taking medication if you live with bipolar disorder no matter what your medication is there's a handful of medications out there but uh, this is this is what really sold me. So when I was in that 33 hospital, 33 day stay at Barnes Hospital, about 20 days into it, I had four of my good friends come in and sit down with me almost like an intervention on like a Monday. And then I had four different friends come in the next day and they, they all had the same message. They said, Michael, we want you in our life. We love you. We enjoy having you around, but we cannot have you in our lives if you don't take your medication. And that really, that really stuck with me because at, at that, up to that point, I think I was 27 years old, maybe at that time, I really wasn't consistent about taking my meds. I just wasn't, it just wasn't, I, I would go for months at a time where I would take it. Then I would go for weeks at a time where I wouldn't, then I would go for other weeks where I would take like half the dosage. 
And so I really have been one of the luckiest things in my life is I have this incredible support system of family and friends who've kept an eye on me through all this stuff. And that when those guys all sat me down back to back days at Barnes Hospital, that was when I told myself, I was like, all right, well, no matter what, I'm going to take my medicine every single day. I won't miss it. So, you know, I ended up, you know, getting out of there. And and actually the next for the next five years, I was in pretty good shape. Um, I was very healthy. I was still drinking, but I but I was taking my meds every day. And that was a big thing with my family. That was a big thing for me. It was a big um, I think if you're, if you're someone with bipolar and you take medication or when you take your medication, I should say, consider that an accomplishment every single day when you take those pills, because you know, by taking those pills, you've taken a step in the right direction to take care of yourself. Now, here's the second story I want to tell you. This is the, really the most interesting one. And I actually haven't shared this except for maybe with one other like show like this. So, uh, 2019, I, uh, it's, uh, it's January of 2019. I spent the summer of 2018 caddying for my good friend, Chris Nagel, out on the Corn uh, Ferry Tour. We had, we had an unbelievable summer. Uh, we, we made it to the U.S. Open where he made the cut. He was playing golf at the highest level. I mean, we beat, we beat Tiger. We beat Jason Day. We beat Rory McIlroy. We beat Jordan Spieth. I mean, we beat them all. And so um, I, as I was caddying for Chris that summer, when we would play the, the now corn fairy tour, I was watching all these guys play. And I'm like, you know, I can do all this stuff that these guys can do. I can, I can hit it in the fairway. I can hit these shots. I can make these putts. Like I can play. So at the end of 2018 and the beginning of 2019, I, I, I told myself, or I decided that I was going to start playing again. I was going to come out of retirement. I, I basically hadn't played for two years. And so one of the things I decided to do as I was training and kind of getting ready to start the year at the beginning of 2019 was I decided I was going to not drink soda anymore and I wasn't going to drink Gatorade. I was only going to drink water and quality water, you know, like electrolyte water. And I was going to drink Pedialyte because one of the things I learned in caddying for Chris was that you really need to keep your brain hydrated, whether you're playing golf or not, or just regular life in order for, to have sound decision-making when your brain is hydrated, you just make better decisions. So I made these decisions, you know, to stop drinking those, those certain drinks. And I added the Pedialyte. So I started playing at the beginning of uh, January of 19 and I started playing pretty good. I, I, I played like three, like what they call mini tour events in Florida by my third mini tour event. I had finished in second place. Now, let me be, let me be very clear. These are not, you know, uh, huge money events, but they were competition. Um, you know, it was, it was a way for me to just kind of try to get sharp. Well, by finishing second in one of these smaller scale events, it, it gave me some confidence. So I made arrangements to go out to Los Angeles. I was in Florida at the time. I made arrangements to go out to Los, Los Angeles and try to qualify for uh, the, the LA open at Riviera. And, Unfortunately, what happened was in that two week span between the time I finished second in that little mini tour event to the time I was supposed to go to Los Angeles, I went into a manic episode because the Pedialyte flushed out my system of my medication. So all of a sudden I'm in Florida and I'm, I don't realize one of the things that happens when you're manic, some people, myself included, you can't tell that you're manic. Okay. Okay. So my dad shows up in Florida because he had been getting reports from friends of mine in Florida about, um, you know, Michael doesn't seem right. Michael might be manic, blah, blah, blah. 
So my dad shows up in Florida and I know this has happened to me before when my dad shows up in a city that I'm in playing golf, that does, that's not good. So I said, what, what are you doing here? He said, well, I, I, I think you might be manic. And I'm like, but I've been taking my medicine. He's like, you have? Cause, cause in the past, whenever I would have these problems, it was always like Michael was skipping his medicine, but I had been taking my medicine so much. So to the point where my mom went to you know, contacted Walgreens and, and checked my pill, my medication, you know, pickups at Walgreens, which were all on time because I was taking my meds. But unfortunately uh, the, the Pedialyte had flushed my system. And so I was basically urinating out now. I, and, and to be honest though, I was drinking a massive amount of both water and Pedialyte. So, you know, I was using the bathroom, you know, 10 times a day before lunchtime. So that was kind of a, and so when, when that happened to me in 19, I only had to go to the hospital for three days. Uh, it wasn't, you know, certainly as bad as some of the hospital stays I'd had in the past, but uh, it was, it was unfortunate because, you know, I felt like by switching from Gatorade and, and soda to Pedialyte, I was making a good choice, which, you know, you think it is a good choice, but it just goes to show you really got to be careful about what you put in your body and, and you know, how that's going to react. So, so besides the medicine that you obviously took to manage this, what else did you do to try to manage this bipolar and the key to kind of living your life now with bipolar disorder? And also I have, I have an addendum question to what Bob just said. Can you also explain, you like, you, you like that, Mike, um, like what's going on? What's the differences in the brain too uh, of somebody who's bipolar versus a neurotypical brain? Well, that one might be a little bit over my head. Uh, but real quick, Bob, I certainly still take medicine to this day. Like I, I always, I will always have to, right? Um, but some of the things that you have to do, and this is, and this is the stuff that I work on with people outside the sporting world. Like I do a ton of work with people that have bipolar, whether they're 20 year old kids or they're 60 year old men or ladies and families that have just been introduced to bipolar and they don't know what to do. They have no idea. And, and it's all fundamental stuff. And just to give you an idea of some of it, you know, um, one of the things that really has helped me handle bipolar disorder is, uh, keeping a gratitude journal. I mean, keeping a gratitude journal is a magical, magical thing. And, and what, and it's very, very simple. It doesn't cost you. All you have to do is go to Walgreens and spend $2 on buying a notebook and, and spend another dollar on buying a pen. And every time you have some free time and you want to like spend some quality time working on your mental health, you fill out an entire page of a gratitude journal. And that to me, what it's done for me by doing that is the bipolar mind has a tendency to find the negative. It will, it will be in any situation and it will have, it'll kind of lean towards finding the worst possible scenario. And it took me a long time to kind of realize that about bipolar. So when you keep a gratitude journal, that's a way to train your brain and to try to, you know, I always use the terminology, you treat your brain like a garden and you, you keep this garden fresh and you, you know, you put soil in there. And one of the things that it's in that soil is that gratitude journal. And, you know, I do the gratitude journal and, and to take it a step further, I would write down all the gratitude stuff. You know, I'm grateful. And it would sometimes be like small stuff. Like I'm grateful for my car. I'm grateful for my shoes, my clothes. You know, I, I do a lot of work with veterans 
and some of these guys are amputees, right? So I'll, I'll be like, uh, and when I do my gratitude journal, I'll write, I'll write something like, I'm grateful for my hands. I'm grateful for my legs. I'm grateful for my feet. And then once you cultivate like that kind of thought process, you know, it's amazing because it keeps away all that negativity that the bipolar mind naturally produces. So that's been a really big uh, helper for me as far as like little tricks. And certainly exercise is, is the most important thing. Um, you know, I, if I don't have, you know, the space or the time, uh, you know, I'll go back to old gym class moves and do like a bunch of burpees or do a bunch of, uh, you know, jumping jacks or, or push-ups or sit-ups and just any kind of exercise is certainly magical for the bipolar brain. Um, you know, some of the other things, certainly a clean diet and, and, and quality sleep is, is really important. I mean, if you can, if you can get to a place where you don't sleep with a television on, you have the right temperature. I mean, I think it was Tom Brady who was even talking about like sleeping at like 64 or five degrees, which I think is smart. If you can do that, remember to do that. Um, so it's all these little types of things like that, like, and that's the most interesting thing. And I'm glad you asked that question, Bob is like mental illness can be so complicated, right? And everybody gets it contorted and twists everything around. Like, how are we going to fix it? What can we do to fix it? Well, the best way to handle all these mental illness situations is to do things fundamentally right you know like eat right sleep well you know have the feeling of gratitude certainly take your meds hydrate at a high level you know like make sure water is you know, you're drinking a lot of water um because if you don't take care of yourself with these simple things then when the the complicated stuff does arise with like the mania and certainly depression is a little bit more prevalent than mania uh, however, mania can be just as devastating, but the, these are the kind of fundamental things that I think people forget about because they're looking for this like yearbook answer on, you know, well, they need to, I, we need to find this medication, like this one pill will help my daughter or son or husband or, or wife, you know, be better. And that's the biggest bunch of, can I cuss on here? Yeah. That, that's the biggest bunch of bullshit I've ever heard is like <laughs> people, people will come to me and they'll be like, well, my mom is really sick, but she, they, they don't have her on the right medication. If they get her the right medication, she'll be fine. Yeah. Well, is your mom, is she at least walking around her neighborhood every day or, you know, is she doing anything to actually help herself? Right. Because when you have a mental illness, to be honest, it takes work, like serious concentrated work to fight against it and to win against it. And I just know because I've gotten my ass kicked by mental illness quite a bit and the only times that I've been able to have long periods of success with my health is when I work at it every single day. And so there's no days off with it. And, but, but it's not just one pill. One pill isn't going to fix anybody. It's not just like one day of exercise is going to do it either. You got to stack all these things on top of each other and, and build your health. And that's, that's kind of what I've had to learn on my own. I never had, one of the reasons I do the work that I do now is because I never had like a mentor with bipolar. I never had anybody who was older than me that had it, that knew what the hell they were talking about. That could say, Hey, Michael, try this, do this. This will help you. This won't. And that's, and that's one of the biggest and most rewarding things that I found in doing this work is working with people, especially like young dudes that are in their late teens and early twenties who are just getting introduced to bipolar and they're scared shitless. And cause that's how, that's how it was for me when I was diagnosed at 23. So um, it's fundamental stuff, really, that, that is, is the way to go about 
battling the right way. It's not just uh, it's never a quick fix. It's always you just got to put the work in and, and have good fundamentals, just like sports, really. Mike, uh, in 2015, you wrote a book called Birdies, Bogies and Bipolar Disorder. David Faraday, who also has bipolar, wrote the foreword. How much of and by the way, as we're taping this, it is uh, it's available on Amazon and it's Amazon Prime Day today and tomorrow. I haven't checked to see if it's on discount or not. Birdies, Bogies and bipolar, but how much of writing this book was therapeutic for you and how much of it was geared as sort of a help manual for other people with bipolar? Uh, I didn't realize how therapeutic it was until I was done writing. I wrote it because like I said earlier in this talk with you guys, I've been, my luckiest thing in my life is that I have this unbelievable support system. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I had like, I, I think we, we made fun of it one time at one point when I was in a manic episode, like in 0405, there was 12 different people on a text chain, keeping an eye on me all over the city in my hometown in St. Louis. Um, so, you know, the support system that I was able to have, I know nobody, very few people could possibly have a support system like that. So when I decided to write the book, that was kind of the goal. It's like, look, there's people out there dealing with this bipolar and it's a nasty thing, Evan. I mean, it is a dirty, uh, gross, just it, it's sinister. It's invisible. It will, it's put me in places that are so bizarre. It's killed people that I know. Uh, it is, it is a nasty, nasty thing. So, and I knew all that before I wrote the book because of the places that I it had led me to. So when I wrote it, it was about giving a support system to people who would read it. And I, and I know from the feedback that we've gotten that it's done that, um, we've really, I feel like helped a ton of people that were uneducated and, and had no experience. And we were able to give them that support they needed. Uh, in addition to the book being a story, the book is a story of my life from 2001 to 2011 playing of me playing professional golf while living with bipolar disorder. And then at the end of the book, after the story portion, I put in a section um, at the end of the book. Uh, it's a section called the 14 clubs. The reason I, it's called that is because in order to if you're going to play competitive golf, you're only allowed to use 14 clubs. So these 14 clubs that I wrote at the end of the book are all 14 different ways to fight against depression and uh, make no mistake. It is a fight. If you have depression or bipolar depression, any kind of depression, it is a fight. You've got to, you really got to get after it to, to fight against depression. Um, so, but was it therapeutic? Yeah. I mean, once I, once I got it all out and Faraday came up on board, which was really cool, like super cool of him to do that. Like he is, I owe him for the rest of my life for that. That was one of the coolest things anybody's ever done for me because of who he is in the golf world. And, you know, the fact that we both have bipolar and, and he didn't, you know, he was great about it too. He was, he was so, he was super cool. It wasn't difficult to get him to do it, but um, it was therapeutic for me to, um, to do it. But I didn't realize that at the time, you know, I didn't realize that. All right. Before we let you roll and, and the time has been just unbelievable. I've taken a ton of notes on everything that you've said so far today, Michael, because I kind of find it relating to me in some you know instances. What's your life mission, man? You, you've, you've done so much. You've raised money for veterans, bipolar with golf tournaments. What's your life's mission? Yeah, I think it's taken me a while to kind of understand 
the exact mission, but I've known, I've known what it is for the last about four years. My mission is to absolutely bury bipolar disorder. And what I mean by that is it's twofold, right? The first part of it is I need to bury my own uh, bipolar disorder every day. And what I mean by that is I want to win against bipolar every day. And I don't just want to win. I want to run up the score like Steve Spurrier wins against bipolar. Like I, I, I want, I want to abs. I'm, ser- I'm serious. I'm no, serious. I believe you. I believe you. I just haven't thought about Steve Spurrier in a while. Continue. Yeah. Well, and, and he was, you know, he, I always, I always loved watching him because when he was at Florida, he would run up the score on everybody. Yeah. Right? Well, 78, like 13. Yeah. I think I Nick guess. Saban does a good job of that right about now. Yeah. yeah he's very, very similar, very similar, but, I always, I got to a point with my own bipolar where it really was impeding everything. It was getting in the way of everything that I was trying to do. So I have to win against that every day and I want to win big. I don't just want to barely win every day. I want to absolutely bury it. And like I said, run up the score. And then the second part of it is I want to help other people that have it do the same thing because I know what it's like to wind up with no clothes on, on the side of an interstate in the middle of the country. I know what it's like to wind up in a jail cell uh, in nothing but my blue jeans because my bipolar mania, you know, put me in a weird place. I mean, I know what it's like to have to spend time in hospitals. I know what it's like to have your parents and, and your family look at you like they're so disappointed, but they don't know, really know what to say because they know it's a disease and they know it's, it's something that it's, it's very difficult to control. And so by having all those experiences on my own, I want to help other people you know, stop those experiences from happening to them. So, you know, my, my mission or my, you know, purpose or service is to uh, just absolutely embarrass bipolar disorder and dominate against bipolar disorder for both myself and for other people. That's, that's All right. something. Last question, Michael, you've held 10 golf tournaments through your organi- organization birdies for bipolar uh, the website is birdies for bipolar with the number four birdies for bipolar.org. Tell everybody before we go here about the golf tournaments that you've hosted to raise awareness for bipolar and tell everyone about your website. Yeah. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, so yeah, we've done, we started doing tournaments in 2013. We've done eight in St. Louis We've done one in New Orleans, and we also had uh, – you guys probably both remember this gentleman. You remember Jay Moore, the comedian? Mm-hmm. Sure. We had Jay Moore do stand-up comedy at an event in New Orleans for us back in, like, 2017. So we've had 10 events, as Evan mentioned, and, you know, we've taken the money and we filtered it a couple of – or a few different places, but the, the, main, um, the main funds have kind of gone to – a couple of the same areas each year. One of the things that I'm really proud of, and I didn't know this was going to happen when I started the charity, it just kind of organically happened is every year for the last eight years, we've sent anywhere from six to 21 veterans to go and compete in the Missouri amputee golf championships. And um, these guys, we got connected with these, these veterans in St. Louis. When I had our first event in St. Louis, I called the VA hospital and I said, my, both my grandfathers were in the Navy. So I had a great respect for, you know, veterans and called the VA hospital and said, Hey, will you, do you have any golfers over there that would want to play? Send like four guys or send eight guys and have them come out. They don't have to pay. We'll just, we just want to have them out so they can enjoy themselves. And sure enough, they sent out eight guys and 
one thing led to another. And, and later that summer of 13, I started working with a gentleman named Herman Lugie. Herman is the, he was the recreational therapy director at the VA hospital in St. Louis for 35 years. And he and I, well, more him, I helped him, but he was the one, he started this golf league in St. Louis and, and we, we helped him out with, with money for it. We helped him out with, uh, I would go over there and play with the guys. When we started the golf league in the summer of 2013, there was 12 golfers. As we speak right now, I, I've, I know this season, we've had as many as 90 golfers, uh, 90 veterans come and play in this league. And these guys, some of these guys only have one arm. Some of these guys are missing a leg. Some of these guys are missing an eye. Um, and golf really gives them an opportunity. Number one, the thing they love the most is that they get together with each other and give each other shit. That's the mm. thing that they, that they really love. But it gets them outside. They all struggle with TP or PTSD. They all struggle with depression. And, you know, we have the league every Thursday. We send them to the tournament in Columbia every year. We, I brought them to tournaments in Chicago. Um, just try to basically say thank you to these guys. And we, we'll take them and we'll pay for their hotels. We'll pay for their dinners. We'll pay for their entry fees um, if they need equipment, stuff like that. And it's just a way to say thank you to those guys. And, and it's turned out to be um, incredible. Uh, one, of the, one of the guys, uh, this guy's an incredible story. About a year and a half ago, he was, he was weighing over 530 pounds. He started rowing on a rowing machine. He then became, uh, he, law, he got down to like 260. And he became the 55th ranked uh, para, or, uh, I guess, I don't know. He's missing a leg. So what, what would you call that? A paraplegic golfer? Yeah, or, I think so. Amputee? Like, amputee. Yeah. Okay. So he's yeah. the 55th. He went from 530 pounds, couldn't play golf, to, to getting down to 260 and becoming the 55th ranked ranked uh, amputee golfer in the United States. So wow. like that, that doesn't happen if we don't have that league for him. But so that's, that's the kind of stuff that we've done. We, we've filtered money some other places that we thought other mental health organizations were doing good work on. Um, but the veteran work I've done with those guys specifically is the stuff that has been every year. And that's kind of the stuff that I'm most proud of. And, and those guys, I've met all these guys and I've become friends with them. Like I'm talking like 50 people that I didn't know before bipolar disorder, or the, the charity that now that like, when I go play at these tournaments, like, we're all giving each other shit and I play with some of them and they, we just have a great time. And, you know, for what they've done for our country and most of them are older, uh, you know, anything I can do to, to thank those guys or do something for them, we're going to do. Thanks, Michael. Uh, obviously you're helping athletes on the field and uh, even more importantly, you're a lead point for human beings here uh, helping people live their lives and as you said run up the score against bipolar we appreciate you joining food for thought on mental health with bob and i i appreciate it boys thanks so much for having me welcome back to food for thought evan makovsky along with bob fesco we're taking a look at mental health and what a uh, show it's been with jim eisenreich and mike wellington and boy does mike wellington First of all, you know what you know what occurred to me during hearing Mike speak is that I felt empathy for him. He has lived a difficult life. 
That's an interesting word to use for that. I, I felt like happy for him listening to him, knowing that he had these issues and was able to get through these issues and identify these issues that he had, because a lot of times you, you're not able to do that. You're not able to have a support system like he did and people that cared for him. And he had the opportunity to do a lot of really cool things because of the support system that was around him and people, you know, helping him, no, nobody turning him away and saying, you're no good, or you can't do this, or you can't do that, or you're strange, or you're odd or you're anything like that he had a group of what did he say like 12 people that were supporting him man it's important to have that support system and and the fact that he let the support system work for him speaks volumes because i think a lot of us were all guys ah, i don't need help i don't want your help i'm good by myself i'll be okay he allowed that support system to help him and get him to where he is today which is obviously a, a very inspirational speaker i, I agree exactly with your take. So let me clarify what I'm saying. He gave an example that he was hospitalized for only three days in 2019 because Pedialyte, you know, drove uh, medication out of his system. I know mm -hmm. from speaking to him, he didn't identify the medication, but I believe he's on lithium, uh, which is a common um, prescription medication for people who have bipolar disorder. But I, when I said I felt empathy, it was like he ended up in a manic state. He quit drinking. And then somehow he wrote that book in 2015. He's had his life together. And then somehow he's in the hospital for three days because of Pedialyte. Yeah, it's funny when, when, you, when you mentioned the Pedialyte, I'm thinking about all those days you've been hung over and you're like, oh my God, I need something. And, you know, I've had friends drink Pedialyte and I always kind of went, Pedialyte, that's what you're going with, but it's supposed to be really good for you. And so when he was telling the Pedialyte story, I had no idea it was going to flush his system of something like that. And I'm sure he didn't either, but he was able to rebound from that. And, and, and that's what, you know, these two guys that we talked to, both Jim Eisenreich and, and, and Mike Wellington, are all about, about two guys who overcame a crap ton of adversity in their life to achieve great things and, and and their life stories are very inspirational for so many people yeah and and mike certainly is absolutely an inspiration the work he's doing now with uh you know the university of tennessee with pro athletes i thought he was very humble in the way he answered the question about if it wasn't for bipolar could he have been a pro golfer. And he tried to give us an honest answer there. And I kind of felt like the answer was he doesn't blame bipolar and he's not sure that he had this exact skill set, although he was a dynamite golfer to make it to the professional level, especially now that he is interacting, caddying with pro golfers. But I mean, you know, what would have, could have, should have, um, I guess, you know, he's at peace with it. And that's what matters, whether yeah. he could have been a pro golfer or not. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it, it takes a lot not to say, yeah, I'd have been there if it wasn't for bipolar disorder. And and for him not to say that, not to kind of use that, if you will, as a crutch, I think is 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 really, really, really um telling on, on who he is as a person. He's not going to let something like that keep him down. And he's still going to take the responsibility and ownership for everything. Me, on the other hand, I said, yeah, I got screwed by bipolar disease <laughs> and would have moved on, but not Mike Wellington. And that's why he's, he's at the top of his game. And he also mentioned the fact he wants to Steve Spurrier bipolar disorder, which I thought was a great analogy. Um, when he was asked about his life mission and, I, I would say if, uh, you know, between 
the holding of the charity golf tournaments, the working with amputees that he discussed about, mm-hmm. you know, listen, it, it's not a cold. Uh, mental illness and people are, think like, oh, get over it, get over it. No, no, you have to manage it for the rest of your life. So he's not out of the woods, but to me, he already is a lead point, somebody to look to and just, you know, I, I don't want to use the word hero because that's thrown around too much, but it, it, he's, he's one just with all the work that he's put in already and his positive mindset and just not resenting his past like Eisenreich. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. How, how do you not resent your past, Evan? I mean, I, I think we all do, no matter what it is that we do in life. I mean, I, I think we all look back at a moment that we truly resent. And that kind of, I don't know if it fuels you or if it's just something that you dwell on, but we all have those moments. And it sounds like, you know, a guy like Jim Eisenreich and Mike Wellington could have had many moments in their life where they resented and they allowed it to hold them back, but they didn't. They just got past it and they moved forward. And I, I, I got to be honest, man, that's hard to do. But again, that's why Jim Eisenreich is hitting World Series home runs. Mike Wellington's almost making the PGA Tour. And you and I are sitting here talking about them because <laughs> they, they, they're they better than we are, man. I, I, I agree with you. And uh, Mike Wellington is uh, who I, I know <clears throat> a little bit personally is definitely, at least for me, a... Uh, a lead point and, um, you know, amen to these two people, amen to athletes coming forward here with their mental illnesses, to not being shamed, to not being ashamed that one time, you know, you were manic and did X, Y, and Z to move forward from it and just address your situation and stay positive and go forward and not be mad about the hand you were dealt. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you, you can't be mad about it. Anger doesn't do you any good. It really doesn't. Be positive, move on, find a way to kind of improve yourself from that setback or whatever it is that you're facing in life and move forward because sitting there and resenting it and dwelling on it just doesn't work and it doesn't do you any good. Bob, it was special doing this Food for Thought episode on mental health. Uh, it, it really... Um, it moved and it inspired me. And um, that's really all I have to say is that I am, um, I don't want to say I'm emotional, but uh, I'm definitely impacted by the two people that we spoke to today. I'm impacted by what's going on with Naomi Osaka in the world. And I, I hope that this is, this world becomes friendlier and more accepting towards people who have mental health issues. Yeah, no question about it. I think that's a great way to put it. It becomes friendlier and more accepting to people who have it and understand that a mental health issue is just like hurting your knee or hurting your leg or hurting your elbow. It's an injury. It's just to a different part of your body that for many years, nobody talked about, nobody understood. I think now we understand it more than ever before. For Bob Fesco, I'm Evan Makovsky. Thanks for listening to Food for Thought.